This is an IPA studio production. Title 35 of the United States Code, Section 103, mandates that a patent not be given when the differences between the subject matter sought to be patented and the prior art are such that the subject matter as a whole would have been obvious at the time of the invention was made to a person having ordinary skill in the art. Howdy, I'm your host Preston Morgan, and you're listening to Skilled in the Art. Skilled in the Art is brought to you by Intellectual Property Aggies, a student group at Texas A&M University School of Law filled with students aspiring to be IP attorneys. This week's episode is part of our business formal series. We sit down with professors and practitioners and hear their take on the big issues in IP. This week, we have Professor Megan Carpenter. She currently teaches a wide range of IP classes at Texas A&M, and she recently accepted a position as Dean of University of New Hampshire School of Law. You'll hear more about her next week in her business casual episode. This week, however, we talk about the case in Ray Tam as we await the ruling from the Supreme Court. First, we talk about Tam and his band, The Slants. The Slants are uh, a, an Asian-American rock band, and they, their music is, um, I've seen it referred to as kind of like electronic Chinatown dance rock. And um, they originally applied to register the name of their band as a trademark with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Um, they're really committed to social justice issues, and uh, Simon Tam uh, spends a lot of his time when he's not fighting trademark battles um, in the social justice arena as as an activist. And uh, their trademark was rejected by the trademark office uh, because on the basis that it disparages people of Asian descent. Um, because the, the ter- because of the term the slants, um, they had listed in their trademark application at first, as I understand it, um, something about being Asian American or or um, or a group that you know somehow being self referential in that way. Um, so they they pulled the application and then um, made no reference to their identity as Asian Americans um, Mm. or their social justice efforts in the next application. And it was still rejected on the basis that it is disparaging of people of Asian descent. Um, And the members of the band are are also of Asian descent. So they have been really um, seeking to reappropriate the term slants and use it in an empowering and positive way. Um, So I I think that this rejection of the trademark application was something that they didn't take lightly Mm -hmm. and decided to uh, move forward and and went all the way to the Supreme Court. And Mm -hmm. uh, the case was heard in January of of this year. and the, the court is now looking at whether or not 
rejecting trademarks on the basis, rejecting trademark applications for registration uh, on the basis of disparagement is itself constitutional. So uh, before we get to, you know, whether it's constitutional, what, can you tell us, like, why, why do the slants want a trademark? Can they, can they use it anyway? Uh, with, uh, can't they still name their band the slants without a trademark? Yes, they can. They can still call themselves the slants. They can use it um, as a common law trademark. You don't have to register a trademark to have protection as a mark. Mm. Um, in fact, uh, while there are some differing opinions on the subject, uh, it's likely that they could even enforce their trademark rights under the Lanham Act, under Section 43A, even if they have a mark that, that is unregistered. Um, there are substantial benefits, however, to trademark registration, including uh, nationwide protection, um, not just, you know, in, with common law trademark rights, you have trademark rights to the extent of your use, um, but with registration, it's, it's nationwide, coast to coast. Um, you, there are other benefits like, um, you know, the validity of your trademark is, is no longer in question. It can only be challenged on, on very limited grounds. It can be held uh, incontestable after a period of five to six years. Um, and and um, there's certain customs benefits and things like that. So there's a, a package, kind of a bundle of substantial benefits that you get through trademark registration. And um, and also a lot of times, I mean, if, if a client is using a mark in interstate commerce, a lot of times attorneys will recommend registration because it's mm. kind of, you know, the right thing to do the, because the trademark office wants this record of trademark registration so that um, it can help. Uh, avoid likelihood of confusion in in the marketplace. Trademark is trademark law is, is different from other forms of IP law because um, it's not based in the what's thought of as the the IP clause or the patent and copyright clause of the Constitution. It's really based in the commerce clause, and it's a consumer protection device at its best. So, in the interest of consumer protection, um, we don't want consumers to to be confused or deceived um, in, in, or misled in some way. Um, and so that's really kind of the, one of the core functions of, of trademark law um, is to make consumer purchasing decisions more efficient and also to, you know, uh, consequently incentivize producers of goods to produce quality goods so that mm. people, when they see that trademark, are drawn toward it rather than drawn away from it. Um, and so I think one of the, the core questions for these two provisions and the, the provisions in the Lanham Act that deal with offensive trademarks, mm -hmm. um, which are disparagement and um, a prohibition on registration for scandalous and immoral marks, um, you know, one of the concerns, it seems like, you know, it's just unusual relative to the rest of the body of trademark law because um, the type of consumer protection we typically think of when we think of trademark law is um, one that's based on source confusion, um, you know, identifying the source um, rather than kind of some sort of moral protection. Next, I ask if moral grounds are a common source of rejection for various IP rights, like patents and copyrights. You know, it's interesting that you ask that question because... Both patent and copyright law 
once conditioned certain forms of protection on moral grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but they, they no longer do so. So copyright um, uh, once ref- you know, was ineligible um, to works that were obscene in some way. Mm-hmm. And, but now, um, and it's fairly recently, but, um, um, but now there's really no question about the registrability of, you know, adult materials, um, obscenity in, in some way. And the Copyright Office doesn't inquire into, you know, the content in, in, in that way in a substantive manner. Uh, patent law also used to have um, a, an invalidation based on a theory of, of moral utility. And so a classic example might be something like a gambling machine. Um, you know, would a gambling machine be able to be patented or is it, you know, inherently an immoral right. um, invention? Mm-hmm. But now, um, while the moral utility doctrine in patent law hasn't been um, explicitly um, removed from from the doctrine, I think that it it's something that um, we just don't see patents invalidated on moral utility grounds anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think that the the patent office will go to lengths to um, to use other bases when we're talking about you know potentially controversial inventions or creations um, to um, to disclaim patentability for for those inventions. While the Mark and the Slants case deals with disparagement, Professor Carpenter has done a great deal of work on a related issue: scandalous marks. My work in this space started. Um, gosh, years ago now, when the Lanham Act, which is the Federal Trademark Act, mm-hmm. um, was turning 65. And so uh, a, a professor at Louisville, John Cross, um, decided to have a conference to, to look at the Lanham Act. You know, what, now that it's turning 65, you know, what should we do? Should it retire? Should it buy a convertible, move to Florida? You know, what, what's the state of the Lanham Act? And, and um, different scholars looked at different aspects. And as I considered what aspect of the Lanham Act, um, I, I would look at it really these, these particular morality bars in, in 2A, um, bars to registration, were something that just for me have always stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, I can understand, you know, rejecting trademarks based on um, false association, deception, misdescription, mm-hmm. likelihood of confusion, but scandalousness and immorality or disparagement just seem like outliers in the body of trademark law. So, mm-hmm. so I wrote an article in conjunction with a uh, uh, Catherine Murphy, who uh, was a research assistant of mine at the time, and and the two of us looked into these bars to see, you know, kind of what's going on and, and what's out there. And, and that was the first dive, I think, that I did into the subject. And after that, I thought, you know, why are these, you know, it seems like the results are really inconsistent, um, that, you know, whether or not this has a place, these bars to registration have a place in trademark law, they're applied in a way that is inconsistent and ineffective. Mm. And so I really wanted to do a deep dive to understand why that's the case. So I embarked on kind of what turned out to be a multi-year project 
on the, the first empirical study of trademark records uh, about scandalous and, and disparaging marks. And there aren't as many rejections for disparagement. So my, my article ended up really focused in on, on scandalous marks. And I wanted to look at really, um, you know, why are these marks being rejected? And what evidence is being used, and um, what arguments are persuasive to um, to help you know move these things forward when they've been initially rejected? Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to understand on a deeper level what's happening, you know, kind of underneath the the basic statistics. Yeah. And so that's the the second piece I wrote was was that it was um, an empirical study, and I, I worked with. Uh, uh, Mary Garner on that that piece, and it really was um, an empirical analysis of of trademarks that have received rejections on because of their scandalous nature. Mm-hmm. So, what did you find? Well, I looked at um, what marks are being rejected, um, what evidence is used to reject them, and uh, you know who the applicants are. And one of the most notable findings, I think, in the research is that. You think about what you know. What does scandalous or immoral mean? And immoral kind of ends up falling by the wayside because, you know, I think nobody wants to touch that. What does that, what does that even mean? But um, so when they're rejected, it's the discussion centers around the definition of scandalousness, and we look at the definition um, from 1938, which is um, when it was put into the act, and um, and the definition of scandalous says things like. You know, shocking to the conscience. I mean, it's a, it's a high bar yeah. to be scandalous. But what I found was that there's really no analysis in the rejections about, you know, how or why these particular trademarks are shocking to the conscience. Right. Um, and and instead, what happens is trademark examiners um, reject these marks if they're listed as vulgar or offensive in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. So in over 90% of the rejections, um, the evidence, the primary evidence used was a dictionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was funny as I was working on this research, I was, you know, sitting in my chair in my living room and kind of, you know, thinking like vulgar versus scandalous, you know, it just seems like a whole different thing. And yeah. right about then, uh, you know, I, I had a teenager, and he walked in the room, and he just it was he was at that age where belching was awesome, you know, and just like the louder you could belch, and if you could belch on command, you know, even better. If you could maybe say a word while you're belching, like even better. So he walked into the room. I'm doing this research, and he's just like, you know? and and I just look up at him, and I thought vulgar, yeah, and then I thought but not scandalous, you know, and so therein I sort of felt like. There's a, there's a distinct difference um, between what's vulgar and what's what's scandalous. And yeah. if we're going to reject marks based on what's scandalous, you can't just look into a, a dictionary and see what might be marked as as offensive in a certain context. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, furthermore, trademarks are all about context. Like that's what's so 
maddening and beautiful about trademark law. It's what drives me crazy. And it what, you know, it's like falling in love, right? You'd like people drive you crazy. You also love them. Um, and so with trademark law, we always want to know what's in the minds of consumers. Mm-hmm. And so you're, tr- you're chasing this notion of what consumers perceive and think about a brand relative to the goods and services that, um, you know, in the marketplace. And so in trademark law, we think all the time about the context of the marketplace. We think about channels of trade. We think about the particular goods and services um, uh, that that mark is on. And so to abstract a mark from the goods and services into just a dictionary definition of a word really is an ineffective application of of trademark law generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for both of those reasons, it's it's problematic to uh, you know use that evidence alone um, or even as a primary basis on which to to reject a mark. We're going to take a quick break. While you wait, here's a message from me. The USPTO is hosting a law school clinic open house on April 21st from 10 to 5 p.m. Come find out if a patent or trademark examiner job might be for you. Also, come learn about the IP clinics that schools like ours have. The day ends with a networking event and reception with members of the Honorable Barbara M.G. Lynn in of court. To find out how to RCP, email me at ipapodcast at gmail.com. We're back And a warning, this next part has some explicit language in it. When a trademark examiner rejects a mark, one would think that the rejections would be consistent, right? Not at all. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but there are some weird consistencies that are, so there are inconsistencies um, in some words. So you'll have a mark for MILF, for example, um, Mm -hmm. as as an acronym or a word. And, um, And, you know, you'll have about an equal number that are rejected and that are approved for registration. Mm. But then you'll have other um, strange situations where marks like um, bitch are are sometimes approved, sometimes rejected. Slut and whore are most often approved, but shit is always rejected. (laughs) So... um, there are weird times where the trademark office seems to be pretty consistent, but why consistent? Like what, you know, inconsistent yeah. among marks. And I don't know, you know, how do you judge sort of these marks against each other? I, I don't know. But it's very strange that where, um, you know, anything that has bullshit in it in some way or shit in it in some way um, will pretty consistently get rejected. But other things that are perhaps more offensive in certain contexts um, will will be rejected. You also see other kinds of inconsistency. So um, one mark, well, bullshit was rejected um, and then badass was approved. And so I don't know where you come out on like which is better or worse, but um, badass was approved because it was a um, it was an acronym. It wasn't you. You were thinking it was actually a word, but mm. really, what I was saying was an acronym for <laughs> um, Betancourt Acoustically Designed Audio Sound System, or something like mm. that, right? And so you see some contortions among some of in within some of these decisions. Right. There was a mark. Uh, there were two marks: a hole patrol and a hole um, a hole's guide to chicks. I think, and. Um, 
And those marks were rejected because even though it said a-hole, we all know what it really meant. Right. right? Um, but two other marks for um, big F and garage, spelled different way, mm-hmm. those were approved. And they were approved because you know, it was a less offensive version of an offensive word. Mm. So you can see how the same reasoning on one hand was used to reject a mark in the case of a hole, but for effin, um, that, that reasoning was used to approve it. So, um, there are lots of inconsistencies in, in a variety of ways when it comes to rejections for, uh, marks based on scandalousness and immorality. Mm-hmm. So, so is there like some overlap between, you know, disparagement and scandalous or immoral, right? So like, I feel like, uh, uh, you know, some of those things that could be, you know, scandalous or whatever could also be disparaging, you know, so, but, but also there, it, it could go the other way around where, uh, you know, badass could be, uh, you know, scandalous, but uh, it could be a term of endearment rather than, you know, disparaging, I suppose, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes in some cases you've seen, we see uh, decisions that say something like, you know, it's, um, it's scandalousness is scandalous because it's obviously disparaging or even see the language mm-hmm. kind of convoluted in, in some of these opinions. Uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, the words will, um, you know, have historically been used almost interchangeably without a defined standard that's been reduced in recent years because, mm-hmm. you know, as the standard for, um, disparagement in particular has become more fleshed out. So in the context of the Redskins litigation that's been going on mm-hmm. for, um, there's been kind of a part one, part two. Um, over the years, we've gotten more of a sense of what it means to be uh, a disparaging trademark. And that standard is better defined than um, than the standard for scandalousness, which we don't really we don't really have one or we don't really know what that means. But a disparaging trademark um, questions whether the mark um, has something that identifies a particular group and whether it would be perceived as disparaging um, to a substantial composite of that group. Mm-hmm. Now, we could take each word in that description and you know blow it up and talk about whether it's sufficiently defined and whether it has any meaning and whether it has any consistency at all. Um, you know, what's substantial, um, what's a composite, um, when it comes to the Redskins, are we looking at all native Americans? Are we looking at a certain tribe? Um, so there are all kinds of issues with the standard, but there is kind of a stand, a legal standard. Now we know at least what we're going to analyze when we talk about disparagement. And that's one thing that's become interesting with the slants, if I may, because, um, the slants are seeking to reappropriate a term in an empowering way and to use it, you know, very intentionally um, toward uh, a mission of social justice. But trademark law generally looks at what the consumers perceive. It doesn't really look at um, what you intended by a certain by use right. of a certain mark. Um, it doesn't matter if. You know, you intend to use something in an ironic way or an empowering way. Mm-hmm. Again, we're looking at what consumers perceive, um, and so that's one of the interesting elements of 
of the slants case. If you successfully reappropriate, then um, then it'll cease to be disparaging. But until that's successful, until it's been used enough to be successful, um, it might continue to be disparaging. Yeah. So like their intent, right? Could could you use that to say, you know, like, uh, you know, I intended to reclaim this, you know, and, uh, you know, the substantial composite, I guess, might not understand that it's not disparaging, but they, you know, uh, they're just wrong. Like they, or, or like there's some that understand, like uh, those who understand my intent, you know, would uh, realize that it's not disparaging. You know? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting combination of the two, right? And mm-hmm. and I think where that could come up is how we define the um, the audience, the consumer mm-hmm. base. And so if we look at the context in which the mark is used um, by a rock band that's, you know, playing all of these shows at law schools and, um, and you know, at festivals and, you know, in with such a strong and pervasive mission of social justice, if in, in that context, um, you know, where the band is comprised of Asian American people working on Asian American issues, mm-hmm. is it disparaging in that context? And so there, I think we're not looking at the intent, but we are looking at the genuine, you know, how it is perceived in, in the marketplace. And when it comes to rock bands, you know, aren't they supposed to push the envelope? I mean, if you think about the names of bands throughout time, you know, I think the context in which something would be disparaging in a band, Dead Milkman being an example, you know, might be very different than if you're selling, you know, baby food or or something like that. And so, you know, one possible issue that um, one possible kind of solution to this would be to consider more the context of of the marketplace. And that's what I talk about in uh, my most recent piece called Contextual Healing. Mm. Uh, if the opposite were true, their, their intent was to, to disparage, like even though like in an ironic sense, right? It might not be, you know, a facially di- disparaging word or term or whatever. But uh, but what if they like? What if they intend to be disparaging? Does that? Do you mean if they point? name themselves something like flowers, and then they intend to disparage a certain group of national origin or, sure, or ethnic sure. yeah, origin? Yeah, yeah, anything. Like I mean, it could be. Uh, you hear the term snowflakes a lot. What if a band calls themselves the Snowflakes, and they're just trying to make fun of you know, uh, you know, all the sensitive uh, political people in politics, right? So. Uh, <laughs> So, so like, what would it, what what would be uh, the what would the trademark office say to that? Mm-hmm. Would they be fine with it? Well, I think if there's something that I mean, if if snow the first prong of considering whether a trademark is disparaging looks at whether or not the term identifies a particular group. So, would the term snowflake be interpreted to identify um, a group of you know? politically sensitive um, um, people or not. Um, and if it's not understood as as directed in that manner, mm-hmm. then I think you avoid the disparagement um, mm-hmm. issue. But I think, you know, what you are, what you're doing is raising a really interesting issue and that's something that the that Simon Tam has brought up uh, many times, which is you know, there are lots of trademarks for slants that have been approved. Mm. And 
the reason they didn't get it was because they're Asian American. So, mm. you know, what is like, you know, d does that disadvantage already marginalized communities? Um, and I think that's a really interesting question. To wrap up, we look at the possible outcomes of NRATAM. The question before the court was, um, you know, whether or not the disparagement bar to trademark registration in 2A is, is constitutional. Um, so it's very possible that we could get an up or down decision. But beyond an up or down decision, it's really difficult to predict what the Supreme Court might do. Um, the oral arguments didn't give me any particular sense of how they might tailor the standard in a way that avoids constitutional concerns mm -hmm. uh, necessarily. But the court could address problems with 2A in either a substantive or a procedural way. Um, I think there are problems kind of on, on both ends of that. They could resolve uh, constitutional concerns by maybe clarifying the disparagement standard or encouraging uh, Congress to clarify the disparagement standard by encouraging the trademark office. Um, the court could find the disparagement bar as is, is void for vagueness because of the way that it is, it has been applied in, in practice um, as, you know, or how it's been interpreted. It could also clarify um, the standard in a way that avoids viewpoint discrimination if it goes that route. Although I think that's a harder argument to make. Um, to me, I, it seems that prohibiting registration of disparaging trademarks either does or does not constitute viewpoint discrimination. Um, and, and there are differing views on, on that. But I think there are all kinds of ways that the Supreme Court might not address, but that the disparagement standard could be clarified in a way that's, that's helpful um, and, you know, by the courts or, or otherwise in defining what a substantial composite is, um, who constitutes the identified group, um, you know, issues of, of reappropriation. Um, one really interesting aspect of disparagement is that we judge disparagement by, uh, you know, looking at whether or not it was disparaging at the time the mark was registered mm. in a cancellation action. Mm -hmm. So we want to know for the Redskins, for example, we want to know whether that mark was disparaging at the time it was registered. And that seems to me a really uh, backwards way to evaluate disparagement because mm -hmm. one would hope that um, as we progress in our culture and our society, we become more socially progressive, more um, culturally accepting, um, you know, that our consciousness is, is our consciousness collectively and individually are, you know, are raised over time. So things that may have not seemed disparaging years ago right. might be acknowledged to be disparaging um, today. And so um, that's another area I think that's problematic for mm -hmm. the disparagement standard. Um, and, and so I think one thing to, to think about when the decision comes out, something to watch for, is whether or not the court's decision and analysis will apply only to the disparagement bar or whether it's going to cover both of the, you know, kind of offensiveness or, mm -hmm. you know, morality bars um, to trademark registration. Um, and, and so if not, 
addressed in the opinion, I would predict that cases on addressing the bar on scandalousness and immorality uh, will surely be coming down the pike Mm -hmm. very soon. So that's something I will be very interested to see. That's it for this week's episode of Skilled in the Art. A very special thank you to Professor Carpenter for being on our show today. Thanks go out to the IT at the law school, Braxton Bragg, Jonathan Minasana, Stuart Campbell, Alex Collins, and Vince Vela. Intro is a mashup of Supreme Court audio from OEA.org and music from Pease on SoundCloud. Saxophone is by our very own Matt Pellegrino. Send questions and comments to ipapodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with Professor Carpenter for our Business Casual series. This has been an IPA studio production. I'm your host, Preston Morgan. Thanks for listening.